Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. This month, we're considering future scenarios relating to climate change, all of which were drawn from our annual supplement, The World If, which was published in The Economist earlier this month. In this episode, we'll be asking, how do climate scientists create models for the various paths the climate might take in the future? In a sense, it's kind of science fiction. And so you're having to make all sorts of assumptions about how human society is going to evolve. And some of these choices are completely unpredictable. And we imagine how a vast new industry might emerge to counteract the effects of climate change. Big Suck is the nickname that we've given to the kind of carbon removal industry, a group of technologies which suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But first, with the US election just months away, there's one topic that's being pretty much ignored by Republicans, climate change. You could say it's the elephant in the room. Republicans, elephants, never mind. But as the coronavirus has shown, just ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. So might the Republican Party start to take climate change more seriously? Here are a few of the young campaigners at the American Conservation Coalition, a conservative group dedicated to mobilising young people around environmental action. Republicans are realizing the only way to gain a stronghold in global industry and markets is leading on issues like climate change that have a widespread national and worldwide impact. Climate change has always been a ticking time bomb behind every election for the past two decades, and it's only become closer and closer to that time is going to go kaboom. As I look forward to how my conservative values will be represented in the future, I do anticipate wanting my elected officials to also be cognizant of how they steward the environment. I'm a lifelong conservative, but moving forward, Republican candidates will have to earn my vote by demonstrating commitment to climate action. There is some interesting change afoot, especially amongst younger Republican voters. James Astill, The Economist's Washington bureau chief, who also writes our Lexington column, has taken these signs of optimism and sketched out a future scenario in which the Republican Party goes green for the 2024 election. But before we time travel to 2024, it's important to understand how deep climate scepticism runs in the Republican Party today. It runs pretty Deeply, there is no majority in the Republican Party for serious climate action, and there is still a good deal of scepticism amongst Republicans about the need for any action. Um, that said, there's been a change in recent years. I think most Republicans now acknowledge that climate change is happening, probably also that there's a human hand in the warming that we're seeing, but there's still a great deal of scepticism about climate policy and the need for it, and, and certainly no appetite for the costs that climate policy would bring. OK, now let's turn to your scenario then, which is set in the year 2024. So take us into that future. What's happened? I think the first necessary condition is a really crushing defeat for Donald Trump and his whole politics this year. So that means not only that Trump loses the presidential election, but terrible, terrible results in congressional races and in state-level races, the Republican Party. So a, a real 
crushing time to think again defeat for the party. I think the other essential condition is that the Democratic Party continues to move left on climate change policy. Okay, and why do you think climate might be the sort of issue that a primary candidate might run on in 2024 and not a more traditional Republican talking point? So if we've got the necessary condition, which is a a terrible crushing defeat for Trumpism, for populist conservatism in this election, that 2024 Republican primary candidate would need to signal some kind of change, we imagine, from the Trump era. So he or she would find, I think, that environmental policy was internally by far the lowest cost possibility. There's a pretty short list of dramatic ways that a Republican would signal a change from the Trump era. It might take a pragmatic view of immigration policy, a less hardline approach to abortion, reproductive rights policy, that is. But those two issues would be almost impossible to change the Republican coalition on as it stands. The climate change denialism, now climate change scepticism, certainly scepticism of climate change policy, sort of that order of evolution that the party's already been on when it comes to climate change is something that I think most conservatives would either be happy to rethink or would positively argue for. Who are the uh, the candidates you imagine in this imaginary 2024 race and which of them might uh, grab hold of the green standard? Well, I think that candidate would have to be something of a moderate already. And with that in mind, I think, you know, you have to think about Nikki Haley, the former Governor of South Carolina, also Trump's ambassador to the UN. I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrants who reminded my brothers, my sister and me every single day how blessed we were to live in this country. She's already quite a a hero of the the moderate wing of the party. I think you'd, you'd have to imagine Marco Rubio, who is, let's say, ideologically rather flexible. Of all the places in America... And I have traveled this country now, and I am so proud to be back because there is no place in America that understands the American dream better than this community and this great state of Florida. Tends to play to the gallery, but has shown himself previously to be quite pragmatic, to be also quite moderate on issues at times. But I I imagined as the party looks to make a break with the Trump era, looking beyond Washington, D.C., which has been almost completely cowed by the Trump administration as far as the Republican Party is concerned. And if you you wanted to imagine a 2024 Republican primary candidate who was not in that sense tainted by the Trump era, I would look to one of the party's most competent and popular governors. And right now, that's perhaps Larry Hogan of Maryland. Thank you. It is truly humbling to be inaugurated for another term as only the second Republican to do so in the entire 243-year history of our state. Who is currently certainly riding very, very high. He's the chairman of the National Governors Association, and I think we know that he's ambitious. He's considered in Maryland to have his sights firmly pinned on 2024 already. So could you give us a sense of what his climate platform might look like then? To signal both ambition and something distinctively conservative, not democratic, would be led very much by a market mechanism. I think it could be a cap and trade 
scheme, more likely a, a carbon tax, because that's got quite a lot of support already in the sort of conservative think tank world. And I think also there would be enough kind of moderation to that policy to take account of traditional Republican business constituencies. I think there'd be some carve-outs for natural gas, which the Republican Party has, has strongly championed. At the same time, be some particular perks for renewable energy companies, which have been growing fastest, funnily enough, in Republican-controlled states, places like Oklahoma and Texas. And what about Mr Hogan's opponents? You've mentioned Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio. So what might they have to say on climate? I think Nikki Haley would take a similar position to Larry Hogan, maybe more diffidently. She strikes me as rather a, a cautious, carefully rehearsed politician. And I think that Hogan would be bolder in the knowledge that as a governor, as a lesser known figure nationally, he'd have to make more of a statement from the get-go. I think that Marco Rubio who has been for climate change policy, against climate change policy, every which way, which is, you know, characteristic of his political record, would have a, a climate change policy, but again, with a different accent. I think that it would be based around competition with China, the need to sort of develop a lead in technologies and in industries of the future around energy, etc. So who among these candidates do you think would then uh, win this imaginary primary of yours? I think Hogan would win. And I think Hogan would win in part because he's got this issue right. He understands that the party needs to uh, signal a change, needs to kind of regrow itself from the ashes of its terrible defeats in 2020. I think that he would have a coherent platform uh, led by this sort of environmental makeover for the Republican Party. I think that his candidacy in and of itself as a, as a sort of ex-Washington DC candidate would signal a necessary change. And I think in addition to that, both his likeliest rivals, Marco Rubio and Nikki Haley, are flawed politicians. Do we know what Larry Hogan's position is on climate now? Because the final question has to be, how likely is all of this to come to pass? Mm, well, I mean, the details of this scenario, I guess one would have to say, are not all that likely. Of all of the candidates who are likely to run in 2024 and those of those candidates who are likely to bubble to the top in 2024, well, you know, Hogan's in the mix, Nikki Haley's in the mix, Marco Rubio's in the mix, but our ability to predict that this far out is quite limited, I would say. But how likely is it that some moderate Republican candidate running at the top of the race pushes environmental policy? That's much likelier. How likely? Um, maybe less than 50-50, but still a substantial chance, I would say. And it certainly becomes much likelier if the party suffers a really serious wipeout in this electoral cycle in 2020. James Astill, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can read this scenario in full in the World If supplement, which you can find online at economist.com slash the world if. And you can listen to and read more of our journalism by subscribing to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And those links are both in the show notes. Next, for our annual collection of speculative scenarios, The World If, we decided to label each story not just with the future year in which it was set, but with the carbon dioxide concentration in parts per million, 
and the temperature rise above the pre-industrial average, which the Paris Agreement aims to keep between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. The more optimistic scenarios have lower carbon concentrations and temperatures, while the more pessimistic ones have higher carbon concentrations and temperatures. But we didn't want to just make these numbers up, so we were guided instead by things called RCPs. Now, I have to confess I was not terribly familiar with what these were or how they worked. It turns out that RCP stands for Representative Concentration Pathway, but that name itself is a bit confusing. So what exactly are they? They are basically scenarios that climate researchers use to make projections about what the future climate might look like. Katrine Bryak is The Economist's environment editor. The thing to understand is that while climate modellers can sort of understand reasonably well how, say, the atmosphere works, the ice sheet works, and can model the physics that underlie the global climate reasonably well, the thing that's much harder to model is human behavior and how different societal changes, economic changes, political choices might affect future greenhouse gas emissions and therefore future climate change. And so one way of getting around that is to create, in effect, hypothetical futures, so alternative hypothetical futures representing a range of possibilities. And these are what's known as the climate scenarios. So the RCPs really just look at how the greenhouse effect is going to change over the 21st century. And that's specifically how radiative forcing, something known as radiative forcing, is going to evolve. In practical terms, there's basically four main ones, aren't there? And they range from quite an optimistic one, where I think emissions are being cut very dramatically starting in the 2020s, by 2020. There's a very pessimistic one where, as far as I can tell, nobody makes any effort at all to combat climate change. And then there's two in the middle. Is that about right? Yeah, and there are no specific policy pathways that are associated with this, but some representative ones have been linked to them. But basically, the low-end one lands you with a minimal, it's a very optimistic, low amount of climate change the one at the upper end, which is known as RCP 8.5, is notoriously controversial because it is a very high-end amount of warming by 2100. And then in the middle, you've got RCP 4.5 and RCP 6.0, which sort of a low-middle and a high-middle scenario. Okay, now these RCPs were all created at the beginning of this century, basically, weren't they? And it's, I think, pretty clear that we aren't on the RCP 2.6 trajectory, because that would have required us to have taken a lot more action. Where do you think we are? Is one of them anywhere close to the actual reality? You could potentially land us on an RCP 2.6. It would require peaking emissions and then coming back down. And that involves a quite a large amount of what's known as negative emissions, so sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. I think a more realistic scenario would be somewhere between the two middle ones, so the RCP 4.5 or the RCP 6.0. The RCP 8.5, I mentioned, has been controversial because the sort of sketched out socioeconomic and energetic pathway that's been associated with it involves massive boost to coal, dial back of, of renewables, etc. But there are other ways of landing in the RCP 8.5 
scenario, they involve unknown or poorly understood feedbacks in the climate system. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities that we would end up in this high, high end climate change scenario. But currently, it's considered very, very unlikely. You're looking at it really, you know, the end of the century. In a sense, it's kind of science fiction. And so you're having to make all sorts of assumptions about how human society is going to evolve. And some of these choices are completely unpredictable. I mean, what, what happens with the U.S. election at the end of this year could determine a whole lot of factors. You know, how the U.S. progresses and the choices that the U.S. makes for its energy system and its climate laws over the next five, ten years can have huge impacts on the global system. So, so these sorts of things you could never just plug in like you plug in changes in the atmosphere. They're inherently difficult or even impossible to model. And so you have to, you know, as I say, they could be seen as science fiction or certainly fictional possible futures. And so the scientists provide a range of these to policymakers, and then it's really up to the policymakers to see what happens. Well, thank you very much for explaining that. And please stay with us while we consider the next scenario. Happily. It's set in the year 2050, and we imagine a world in which carbon removal technology has been deployed on a massive scale to literally suck carbon dioxide out of the air and then bury it underground. In this imagined future, global average temperatures have hit 1.6 degrees above pre-industrial levels, but average carbon concentrations are falling. In other words, humanity has turned the corner and started to reverse climate change. Guy Scriven, our environment correspondent, is the author of this scenario, which describes the emergence of a new industry that makes all this possible, which is nicknamed Big Suck. So Guy, what exactly is Big Suck? Big Suck is the nickname that we've given to the kind of carbon removal industry, which is a group of technologies which suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So at the moment, these kind of technologies in 2020 are in quite a kind of nascent experimental phase. But in 2050, in, in the scenario, we imagine them as firstly that we've managed to scale them up successfully and that they've managed to help us along with kind of emissions mitigation efforts. They've helped us stabilise the climate. So to be clear, these are real technologies and we focus on two of them in particular. They do exist today, but tell us what they are. So there are two acronyms, so DAC and BEX. So DAC stands for Direct Air Capture, and that involves trapping carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by sucking air kind of through an absorbent material with basically a giant reversed fan. And the other one is BEX. So BEX stands for Bioenergy with Carbon Capture and Storage. And in that process, the kind of absorption process is done by trees and crops as they grow. That biomass is then burnt for energy and the carbon dioxide produced from that is captured. In both these processes, the carbon dioxide captured is kind of stored underground, which is quite a kind of permanent and secure way of storing it. OK, so this is the idea that we're directly removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it permanently underground. And another name for that is negative emissions, for obvious reasons. Uh, Katrine, you've written about negative emissions. And one of the interesting points you made along the way is that this is something that, oddly enough, oil companies would be potentially quite good at. Why is that? Well, oil companies, in a sense, actually are quite good at this. Some oil companies have been doing what's known as enhanced oil recovery. And what they do is basically they suck 
oil out of the ground. And then in order to get as much out of an oil seam as possible, they can then sometimes pump CO2 back into that oil seam, which effectively displaces the oil and pushes it back up. And so in a sense, oil companies are kind of at the forefront of this industry already. So where are they getting this carbon dioxide from then? Because presumably if you put carbon dioxide into the ground while extracting oil and then you burn that oil, you've kind of got slightly lower carbon oil, haven't you? You've got fewer resulting carbon emissions per barrel of oil that you burn. So where are they getting that CO2 from? So they get the CO2 from their own operations. And as you say, it is not a carbon negative procedure as a result of that. It's what's known as carbon neutral, effectively. But it does mean that in terms of the technology and in terms of doing it at scale, which is really important in this case and really important in terms of Guy's scenario, they have the sort of knowledge and the know-how to pump large amounts of CO2 back underground. Uh, And that's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation in terms of negative emissions is actually capturing the CO2 from the air in order to then put it underground and, and turn this into a negative operation. Okay, Guy, let's go back to your scenario then. So you describe the sort of collapse of the oil industry and the metamorphosis of some of it into part of this new industry. So big oil goes away in large part and big suck rises in its place. So take us through how that works. Yes, in order for Big Suck to rise, you need a kind of handful of of things to happen to help it along its way. A lot of that comes from regulators. So one thing that would be hugely helpful for Big Suck is for a high and, and widespread carbon price, and also a carbon price which takes into account negative emissions, not all carbon pricing schemes do at the moment. And in order to make negative carbon emissions work, at scale, it does need to be a kind of a truly vast operation. We're talking about kind of enormous industrial facilities taking up huge amounts of space. Just to go into detail there, so a carbon price that takes account of negative emissions means that if I'm a company that burns oil and produces a certain amount of emissions, but I also operate some of this machinery to suck some of the emissions out of the atmosphere again, I only have to pay the carbon tax on the difference, on the stuff that's left. Yes, absolutely. Essentially, it's it's kind of subsidising negative emissions technology. So just to further that, Guy mentioned the need for this to be a massive, massive global operation. I just wanted to sort of hone in on what that's going to take. Right now, these technologies are really, really nascent. So you have, in terms of BEX, so this is growing plants, they suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, burning that and then capturing that CO2 before it escapes back into the atmosphere and pushing it underground. There's an experimental plant in Britain that's doing this, and it's basically a shipping container sized installation within a massive power plant. So that's really, really early stages. And the direct air capture, which is sucking CO2 at very low concentration straight out of the atmosphere and then pumping it underground, is again, you know, you've got experimental plants happening. So in order for this to happen, you need, I believe, governments to get quite heavily involved in creating incentives for research and development and development at scale in order to see this happen in the way that we need it to happen. You mentioned the enormous task of scaling this up, but you're right, there isn't much incentive to do it at the moment. But anyway, imagine we did and we did scale it up. Let's go back to our RCPs again. Which RCP scenario are we really talking about here? Frankly, you could talk about any of them, but really the one that cannot happen unless you have this level of 
global negative emissions infrastructure is RCP 2.6. And that's the one that takes us to really a very good chance of meeting the Paris Agreement targets of limiting global warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees above pre-industrial. So if we want to meet the Paris Agreement, and especially the most ambitious end of the Paris Agreement, this 1.5 degrees target, then we're going to need this industry. There's really little question about that. The scale of effort, global effort that's required for it is enormous. Yes, and that's the idea that we're trying to put across with that scenario. Brilliant. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. Thanks for listening, and please rate us on your podcast app. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.